You ready? If you got your Bibles, open to Proverbs chapter 6, Proverbs 6, and 2 Samuel chapter 11. We'll continue our story of David, Bathsheba, and Uriah. Proverbs 6 and 2 Samuel 11. Our study today starts with this question. Have you ever had room to make mistakes in an area of your life? Have you ever had room to make mistakes in an area of your life? Uh, just for the record, there's some of you in a job setting uh, where they have set you up to where you're trying out new things and they allow you a little bit of room to make mistakes uh, so, that you can, uh, so that you can try out new things, try new operations, and, and see if they stick. If you have that job, praise God. That's great, isn't it? So much of the city can be perfection as the standard. You know, it has to be done one way. Um, it's a pretty cool thing if you're in a job that gives you just a little bit of room. I tried to think of an example we could all... Uh, we could all kind of identify with on this. And the one I came up with was the bowling alley, right? What happens at the bowling alley when you're not real good, not real confident at bowling? What do they bring up on the side in the gutters? You got those bumpers, right? Those bumpers, there's some of you that go bowling and you don't ever use the bumper, but just knowing that they're there gives you some confidence as you're bowling. Now, can I tell you that even if you are a bad bowler and the bumpers are in place, there is still a way to get thrown out of the bowling alley, all right? Okay, it's not necessarily because of a bad round that you bowled. Um, you get thrown out of the bowling because you misuse uh, what's, uh, what's at your disposal. So for example, I may have gotten thrown out of a bowling alley when I was a kid, all right, uh, because I held on to the bowling ball too long. We were just messing around, had the bumpers up, but I went and instead of releasing it down low, I released it here and shoo, bam, it smacks right into the wooden floor, leaves a divot there, and I nearly ruined one of the lanes, all right? We also got thrown out later when I was in high school messing around because one of the kids was bowling, and he let go of it too late, and it went on the lane next to him and then went down that bowling alley on the other side, ended up hitting the grate that's supposed to, you know, kind of pick up the pins. It was just an awful situation, and we ended up getting thrown out. It wasn't uh, that we were trying to do right. Sometimes when when you stop uh, adhering to any rules at all, that's where you are removed swiftly and without remedy, all right? So here's the deal. The passage we're going to go through today, Proverbs 6, is one that if you've been around waterfront long enough, you've probably heard this passage a few times. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One sin is not worse than another when it comes to eternity in the sight of Almighty God. But listen to me. When it comes to earthly consequences... Some sins come with earthly consequences that are a bit more severe than others. Eternally, it's all the same. Christ shed blood is the only hope we have that our sin would be covered. But for those of you serving in a position of leadership, you need to know leaders are held to a higher standard. Look with me, if you will, if you don't believe me, look with me, if you will, at Proverbs chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 12. Here's what the writer here in Proverbs says, a scoundrel and a villain who goes about with a corrupt mouth, who winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, motions with his fingers, who plots evil with deceit in his heart. He always stirs up dissension. Now look at the therefore in verse 15. Therefore, disaster will overtake him in an instant. He will be suddenly destroyed and without remedy. Now stop right there for just a minute. This starts off with the passage, a scoundrel and a villain, and it ends with this person will swiftly interact with the wrath of Almighty God. 
What do we know about this person, this scoundrel, and this villain? Notice what it says. It says he winks with the eye, motions with his foot, motions with his fingers. Can I tell you why that's important? They have involved someone else where they are the leader, and they have involved someone else in their sin. They've talked about it beforehand so that all they have to do is motion with their fingers, wink with their eye, stomp with their foot, and then the, other, the rest of the group behaves accordingly with that sinful plot, that sinful plan that they have put together. It says that that person, even though all sin is the same before Almighty God, the sin of the leader is dealt with with the wrath of Almighty God. Look at what it says next in verse 16. It says there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs dissension among brothers. Now stop there for just a minute. You want to know what's interesting about this little verse? Seven things are listed here. The first one is the root of all of it. Haughty eyes. Haughty eyes are the product of the seeds of pride planted in your spirit and planted in your heart and planted in your mind that once they become full grown, it shines out your eyes and it comes to a point where then the people around you that are under your care no longer matter and your plan, your desire, you yourself are worth more than they are. Now, don't miss this. The first one is haughty eyes. It's about you. The other six have to do with the way you interact and lead others. Isn't that interesting? It says six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. And I'm telling you, when you are prideful, you become a scoundrel and a villain. And when that pride is full grown, it says that you will be swiftly and mercilessly destroyed by the wrath of Almighty God. Is it because he hates you more? No, it's because he loves you so much and loves the rest of the people around you so much that the best thing he can do for all of you is remove you from leadership is remove you from a place where you can do harm to anyone else. If you're taking notes, write this down. God takes poor leadership very seriously. God takes poor leadership very seriously. Now, just for the record, it is very easy in a city like ours to go, you know what, I see that on the TV all the time, right? You know what, I see that in politics all the time. Here's the deal. Don't look at this, or I see this in my boss all the time. I see this in my parents all the time. This is not a TV message. This is a mirror message today. I want you to look in the mirror at how you are leading those around you. Look in the mirror and understand that if you are leading poorly, you are on the path to the Lord dealing with you swiftly and mercilessly. All sin falls short of God's glory, and for the for the thanks for the we, we thank God in his great mercy for the shed blood of Jesus Christ so that our sin will not be counted against us. But for those of you in positions of leadership, you need to know with your family, with your job, with your community, just here in this world, with your best friend, when we don't behave in a godly way leading those around us, there are real world consequences for those decisions. Best example I can give to you that, by the way. Uh, we've watched happen time and time again over here at Nats Park, all right? Uh, have you ever been to a baseball game before? The way that a pitcher is handled is the same way that God handles a leader. Have you ever been to a baseball game before? Professional. Even though, I'm telling you, a great hitter can take control and they can win a game, the pitcher is the one that basically wins and loses the game. 
The way that they throw, I'm telling you, it's the, it's, the way, it's the way that the game ends up going. And there's three ways that a pitcher gets handled. The first is the coach allows the pitcher to pitch through difficulty. Those are the bumpers up on the side of the, uh, of the, of the lanes in a bowling match, right? Again, the pitcher is allowed to pitch through difficulty. No better pitching example in Nats Park of that than Max Scherzer. How many times did Max have a terrible first inning, Jordan? I mean, I'm just telling you. Terrible first inning, and then he would go on to basically pitch a perfect game afterwards. You take the first inning away for Scherzer, he might have had three or four perfect games. Because once he got going, Max really got going. It was fun to watch. I mean, even in the World Series, he pitched a terrible first inning. And then I'm telling you, the end of the game was just amazing. Now listen, the coach knows that it's hard to lead. God knows it's difficult to have people under your care. And sometimes he starts off by letting us learn and pitch through it. But if we start having mechanical issues, we start having heart issues, then what's the second step for the pitcher that's having difficulty? They usually don't send out the head manager. They usually send out the pitching coach. Pitching coach walks out, and that's where the player covers up their mouth with the baseball glove. And a lot of times, the manager, the, uh, the uh, pitching coach, will take their hat off and cover their mouth so they can have a truly private conversation. Sometimes it's about mechanical issues, and sometimes it's about personal issues. And so they cover it up, they have their conversation, and then they end up going on their way. The pitcher gets to throw just a little bit more. But then there's a third time. Third time is when the pitcher's doing a disservice to the team, when it's digging a hole for the lineup the next inning, and so it's better for them to be removed than it is to let them pitch through it. That's the point when the coach, usually the head manager, walks out, says, give me the baseball, hit the showers, and we'll let you pitch another day. You ever watched when the pitcher gets angry and doesn't want to go out? They kind of scuff and snort like a bull, and you watch it. They're on the mound, but at the end of the day, it's the manager's club, and the manager walks out and says, give me the baseball, and you can almost read their lips. Hit the showers, and we'll let you know if you're going to pitch again or if you're bumping down to AAA, all right? We're going to let you know how this thing plays out. It's the same for a leader in our relationship with Almighty God. When we allow the seeds of pride to take root in our spirit, all of a sudden when that pride becomes full grown and it shines out our eyes and we begin to harm others with our behavior, all of a sudden the Lord looks at us and says, is this a pitch through? Is this a mound visit? Or is this a gimme the baseball? God doesn't do that to punish you. God does it because he loves you deeply and he cares deeply for those under your care. It begs the big million dollar question today. When does a poor leader invite the wrath of God? When does a poor leader invite the wrath of God? It is of note that the story that we're going to go through this discussion today has to do with someone who is known as the man after God's own heart. Can I tell you why that's important? David invites the wrath of God with his behavior, with his poor leadership, and yet God still used him later to do great things. There are some of you as we go through this today, and it is going to hit very close to home for you because you have made poor leadership decisions, and it's maybe you've even come to the point where the Lord has taken the baseball from you. Know that God is so good, he can make good from any awful situation. The mess we make when we put it in his hands, if there's any good in it, he promises to find it and to use it for his glory. So, 
How do we incite the wrath of God? David's going to give us a textbook portrayal of it. You ready? Look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 11, and let's look at verse 14. As you're flipping that direction, just as a catch-up for you, previously on David and Bathsheba, all right? Here it is, okay? David's supposed to be off at war. It says in Scripture, it's the time when kings go off to war. David's pride has become full-grown in his heart, and it's starting to produce fruit. So shining out his eyes, the haughty nature to his eyes, David goes, you know what, Joab? You go with the men. I'm a king. King shouldn't have to go and do this. David's just roaming around the palace. One night he should be sleeping, but he's got nothing else going on. Idle hands of the devil's playground. And so all of a sudden, he ends up seeing a woman bathing, ceremonial bathing on the rooftop of a building. It's Bathsheba, someone who's been with them for a long, long time since the crags sees Bathsheba bathing, her ceremonial washing after her time of her period. He does the math in his head and goes, you know what? I could probably sleep with her and she won't get pregnant. Let's roll the dice. Sends for her, has her brought to him, sleeps with her. And then sure enough, he finds out that she is indeed pregnant. From that point, David then puts together a scheme to bring her husband Uriah in from the battlefield and to have Uriah go home and sleep with her. But Uriah is a very godly man, does not go home, and in fact, in very public fashion that we talked about last week, sleeps in the entryway so that everyone in the kingdom knows that he hadn't gone home to sleep with his wife. So now David's in a tough circumstance. He's got to send Uriah back to the battlefield, but his scheme has not worked. Now look at verse 14. And for, just for the record, for any of you who've studied the David and Bathsheba story, verse 15 is so, or excuse me, verse 14 is so very important. Look at this one and underline it. It lets you know David's heart here. It says, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Underline and highlight sent it with Uriah. What's in the note? Verse 15, he wrote in the note, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is the fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. It says, so while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men of David's armies fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Stop right there for just a minute. The reason verse 14 is so important, he sent Uriah with his own death warrant. That is stinking. He sends Uriah with a note on how he is to be executed by the army in secret. Now listen to me. When you read this, there were a lot of ways David could have brought this about. But to have the guy carry his own death warrant, that's just, Pastor Wayne said this when we did this in Bible study. I do Bible study with our our church staff uh, before I preach these messages. And Pastor Wayne just goes, it's just evil. It's just evil. Pride when it's full grown comes out in these wicked, evil moments. Now I want you to notice something. Joab Joab doesn't do what David asks him to do. Joab, being the commander, sees the note and goes, so clearly David wants Uriah dead. He goes, we can't involve the men in killing one of their own. They'd be complicit in the murder of their fellow soldier. We can't do that. So instead, he enacts a wicked military tactic, a weak military tactic that causes the death of others so that it can be covered up for as well. If you're taking notes, don't miss this. 
When does a poor leader invite the wrath of God? Are you ready? Number one, when they become given to cruelty. When they become given to cruelty. The dictionary defines cruelty as this. Callous indifference to or pleasure in causing pain or suffering. Let me say that again. Callous indifference to or pleasure in causing pain or suffering. Now, believers in Jesus Christ don't miss this. This doesn't mean that you can't ever be harsh with someone. But listen to me. Look at my eyes. Cruelty is never godly. You hear me? Cruelty in any fashion is never godly. This idea of calloused indifference or pleasure in the pain of someone else is never under any circumstances godly. That means in the way you treat your spouse, it is never okay to be cruel, no matter what it is they've done to you. In the way that you parent your children, it is never okay to discipline in cruelty. You think about it. Every kid knows they get disciplined. In fact, it says in Scripture that the Lord disciplines those that he loves, those that he thinks of as a child, as a son or a daughter. Listen to me. If you discipline in cruelty, that's when they end up going to therapy afterwards. That's when it ends up taking years to get over and to get past that mess. Cruelty? Cruelty is never godly under any circumstances. You'd say, but you don't know how they've treated me at work. You don't know how the city has behaved towards me when I've been trying to get my property through. And you don't know what it's like in the house that I grew up in. Listen to me, it is never okay. It is never godly for someone who claims to be a believer in Jesus Christ to be cruel. If you just write this down, are you ready? Never script tragedy for those under your care. Never script tragedy for those under your care. You'd say, well, does that mean, Zach, that I can't ever fire anybody? No. Sometimes the godliest thing you can do for someone is to fire them. I'm telling you, for some of you, uh, the move not to fire someone is not godly. It's cowardly. You're not firing them and not dealing with it. You're covering over it when the best thing you could do for them is stand up and say, look, I'm sorry, but you can't do this job. You got to find someplace else to go. Sometimes it's godly, but the way you bring it about, listen, the way you bring it about, if it's done in cruelty, they will hate you and become a vicious enemy for you and others will watch it unfold and you will reap the painful benefit of it later. I see some of you smiling and nodding because you know that it's true. Cruelty is never godly under any circumstances. I had something cruel happen to me and it was by accident. And so for some of you, I'm going to give you a path here on if you accidentally are cruel to someone and hopefully this will be helpful to you. Um, the Lord gave us a great testimony in the way Waterfront Church came together. And I reserve the right to share that story. Um, anytime someone asks for it, I've got two versions of it. I've got the short version and I've got the long version, okay? And I prefer to tell the short version. Let me tell you why. Because the death of my father from pancreatic cancer and the starting of Waterfront Church are two stories that are intertwined. And so I have a short version of the story I can tell that hits the high points, but I also have a long version of the story that some of you who've been with us since the beginning have watched me blubber through over and over again. It's really, really hard. Some stories are so embedded in you, it's like they have to be extracted from you in order for you to be able to tell them. It's painful every time. I do it for the glory of Almighty God, but I really am careful where I share the full version because it turns me into a blubbering mess. All that to say, we get contacted just over a year ago by a group out of Oklahoma, Falls Creek Encampment. It's the largest Christian camp in the world. 
And I asked, they asked me to speak session one of the camp, but they asked if they would shoot a, a documentary on Waterfront Church that we showed at the Missions Banquet this last year. They shot a 10-minute documentary on Waterfront that they showed at every session of the camp. More than 25,000 students got to watch this video of how our church got started. So they told me on the front end, they said, we need you to get your heart ready. We'd like to hear the long version so that then we can clean it up and put it together. And they said, and then once it's done, they said, then you can utilize the video. And they said, then you don't have to tell the story as often, which is true. Being able to show the video is a whole lot easier than me having to fight through it and blubber through it. So I set up the meeting. We met in downtown Oklahoma City uh, on this, uh, this warehouse type area where they shot. It was really cool looking in the background. I'll never forget, I go to meet with them, I sit down, it's an hour and a half interview where they're taking in the story, asking questions, taking in information, and because I was able to prepare for it, I'm holding the tears back and I didn't cry, it was great. Fight the tears back, didn't cry, told it the way that I wanted to tell it, told it the way that was truthful, and again, just still got to hold it all together. And then all of a sudden they go, hey, we'd like to get some B-roll if that's okay with you. I was like, what's B-roll? They were like, B-roll is just some footage to kind of put in the background as you're telling parts of the story. And they said, we've set up some rooms for you. And I was like, okay, set up some rooms. And the story of Waterfront began with a prayer that I prayed at the foot of my futon in Stillwater, Oklahoma. Ironically, it was at the Presidential Studios. I lived in Washington 1A uh, at the, uh, the Presidential Studio apartments that were right behind the Walmart on Perkins Road in Stillwater. And so it's at the foot of my futon praying. So I walk in this back room and they've got a futon with an Oklahoma State throw over it and a table. They had recreated the studio apartment. And here's the deal. Here's the deal. It triggered in me this tragedy, the death of my father, my best friend. And I walk in this room and I see it and I was like, uh, what do you want me to do? And they were like, we're just going to have it fuzzy behind you. They were like, just if you wouldn't mind kneeling at the foot of the futon, all it is is B-roll. They said, it's just, just an easy thing. I'm in this moment. It started to become cruel. And so I kneeled down and I'm just trying to fight back the tears. I just kneeled down. I just said a prayer. And then they go, we've got another one. And we, they said, we have three more rooms for you to go through. <laughs> And I was like, oh, okay, you know, whatever. And they go, this next one, they said, we just want you to pack up boxes. They said, it's going to be the B-roll behind when you packed up your father's office when he passed away. And at that point, I walked in the room and I'm like, I don't think I can do this. And then all of a sudden, I'm telling you, this, the, the producer, she stops and she just, I mean, pale white. She goes, oh my gosh. She goes, you're still going through this. I'm like, I am. It's just fine. I can't do this. You know? And then she was like, no, 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 please, please. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. She goes, let's pull back. She goes, it's done, done. We, we don't have to have this part. Totally fine. And I'm like, thank you. You know, I walked to the back. <laughs> now listen to me. It was accidental cruelty. But how does somebody respond when there's accidental cruelty and they're a good leader. They apologize immediately. I'm so sorry. And then she provided an immediate path for me to get out of that cruelty, for me to get out of that situation. For some of you, you've been accidentally cruel to someone that you love the very, very most. Or you've been accidentally cruel to a boss that you don't hate working for. 
Can I tell you what you need to do in that circumstance? I am so, so sorry and immediately provide a path of mercy to get out of that moment of cruelty. When you do that, there are still ramifications, but there's a path back to relationship. If you don't, cruelty that just sits festers and it becomes infected and it absolutely destroys any chance you have at a future. David here illustrates it perfectly. He doesn't just send your eye out. Like Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss on the cheek. That wasn't what the soldiers asked for. It's just as weird as we read it as when they experienced it. Jesus goes, man, I knew this would hurt, but you betray me with a kiss? That was an audible that Judas calls in that moment. It was cruel. It indifference or pleasure in causing pain or suffering. Never script that for people under your care. You can walk them through difficulty, but never script tragedy. You don't believe me. Jesus says it this way. From the mouth of the Son of God, John 10. Flip over to John 10. And let's look at verses 10 through 15. John chapter 10, verses 10 through 15. Jesus says it this way. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. Now watch what Jesus says here. He says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. He's the one who sees the wolf coming, and he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand, and he cares nothing for the sheep. But I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, this is an eternal picture that Jesus paints for us. He's the good shepherd. Any other leader of this world is a hired hand. They might be willing to run off and get help, but they're not going to stand between you and the wolf. They're not qualified to, and they don't have the vested interest. Jesus loves us so much. He says, I am the good shepherd. I am the one who lays down my life willingly for the sheep. I will stand between you and the wolf and protect you. The example that he gives for us as leaders is that we would also follow his example in the people he's placed under our care, in our families, in our work situation, in our community that we would stand up and be the good shepherd, that we would lay down our lives for the sheep, that we would never be cruel. The shepherd is never cruel. The good shepherd is never cruel. It begs the question, in your leadership venue, are you a good shepherd, a hired hand, or a thief? Are you a good shepherd in your leadership venue? Are you a good shepherd, a hired hand, or a thief. The hired hand will go get help, but there's no way they're going to stand up to that wolf. And the thief, pride full grown, the thief is the one who just does whatever benefits them the most. It doesn't matter what they take from somebody else. Now flip over again to 2 Samuel 11, verse 18 through 25, and let's see what happens next. It says, so Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, look at this, when you have finished giving the king the account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up at you. Underline the king's anger may flare up at you. 
And he may ask you, why'd you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, a son of Jerob-Besheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him all so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asked you this, then say to him, also your servant Uriah is dead. Stop right there for just a minute. What Joab is worried about at this point is that David, as king and manager, is going to be mad at him for putting together a bad military strategy. So what does he do? He's been complicit in the cover-up, but he's worried that David is going to manage him the way that he has in the past properly so that he didn't get people killed needlessly. So he says, tell David, he's probably going to get mad at you when you tell him this story. Make sure you let him know we fulfilled the objective of killing Uriah the Hittite, but we got too close to the wall, but it was so we could fulfill his orders. It wasn't because I was trying to be a bad leader. So now look at verse 22. He says, he's going to get so mad. It says, the messenger set out. And when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. And the messenger said to David, the men overpowered us. They came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's men died. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite is dead. Now David's going to get so mad here. Look at verse 25. It says, David then told the messengers, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. Did the king's anger flare at all? Not one stinking bit from a poor military decision that caused many men to lose their lives. Good men to lose their lives. And David is so enthralled with this situation with Bathsheba that is separate from the battle that he has brought his wickedness to the people that are sitting under his authority to the point that even the managers are going, he should be mad about this. He should be frustrated by this. Why is this not a problem to him? It's insightful that the pride is not only full grown, but now producing fruit in and through his life. When that happens, I'm telling you, you are right on the verge of give me the baseball. If you're taking notes, write this down. The essence, or excuse me, number two in this. When does a poor leader invite the wrath of God? Number two, when they are irresponsible with human life. When they are irresponsible with human life. The idea is that they are worth more than the sheep they are taking care of, than the sheep they are responsible for. Not only are you more important than them, but your agenda, your every whim are more important. I tried to think of a movie (laughs) with this example, and you know what I found? It's every movie. It's every villain from every movie. They try to pitch. It's a real easy Hollywood deal to pitch the villain as someone that has no care or concern for human life. You think about it. Every football movie ever made where the head coach is evil, right? What do they have them do? Hey, you got to get this injection in your knee or else we can't win the championship, right? Don't care about the athlete. Just make sure we get the performance. How many military movies are there where they're like, the fighting is fierce on the inside and the king comes out and goes, fire the arrows into the center. And they go, but sir, we'll kill our own. I don't care. Fire the arrows. Right? How many times you see that? Even, I mean, a Christmas carol, right? Charles Dickens. You got Ebenezer Scrooge and greed, right? You got Ebenezer Scrooge going, I don't care if it's Christmas. You're going to work. Don't care about you as a human being, just as someone who produces money for me. One character puts it together. The epitome of evil. Of course, I'm speaking 
of Michael Keaton's Batman, Jack Nicholson as the Joker, all right? It's not the original Batman, that's Adam West, all right? But you got really, really close with Michael Keaton. First dark Batman that was put together. Remember Jack Nicholson? He's got that big, awful, scary smile, the wicked smile, playing the Joker. And there's a scene where he has used acid to burn a woman's face. I mean, just a wicked, wicked, awful thing. And as he's smiling, as he talks to the reporter, he makes the statement. He goes, you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. And he's talking about the wicked thing he's done to this woman's face, the way he's treated this woman. When you get to a point in leadership, when it's more important that things advance in your agenda than it is for the people around you, to be taken care of. And I'm not saying, again, that the vision doesn't ever have weight. It does have weight, but there are ways to do it that are godly. In David's case here, he didn't care that there was poor military strategy used. He didn't care that others died. All he cares about is that one piece that matters to him and what's taking place back home. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? The essence of Christ-centered servant leadership is putting others before yourself. Let me say that again. The essence of Christ-centered servant leadership is putting others before yourself. Leaders are held to a higher standard, and godliness is in putting others before yourself. Again, if you don't believe me, flip over to Matthew chapter 18. I always say that, even if you don't believe me, please, or even if you do believe me, please turn to Matthew chapter 18, and let's look at verses 1 through 7. These are scary verses for leaders, by the way. You ready for this? And you got to remember, the megaphone that is speaking this is the mouth of the Son of God. Look at what it says, Matthew 18, verses 1 through 7. These will keep you up at night. And parents, these are specifically, I believe, for you. Look at what it says here. Chapter 8, Matthew 18, verse 1. It says, At this time, the disciples came and asked Jesus, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who do we need to shoot for? Who do we need to try to look like? Who do we need to try to knock off on this pyramid, Jesus, so we can move up? He called a little child and asked him to stand among them. And he said, I'll tell you the truth. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He looks at them and says, none of you, none of you were humble. He comes in and says, you gotta be humble to enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse five, and whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Now, verse 6 is what's scary. Look at this. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and for him to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Stop right there for just a minute. That's the mouth of Jesus Christ from the mouth of the Almighty right here in this moment. You cause one of these little ones to sin, you not only enable it, but you orchestrate it. Jesus says, I will deal with you myself. It'll be better for you to be done by a millstone at the bottom of the sea than have to stand with me in eternity. Look at verse 7. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Look at this. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. You don't think it matters what you do? Christ shed blood covers our sin, past, present, and future into eternity. But right here we get to see, if you are the one who brings that sin and brings others along in that sin, there are real world consequences for you, and the Lord takes care of those himself swiftly and mercilessly. It begs the question, are you stirred by the struggle of someone other than yourself? Are you stirred by the struggle of someone other than yourself? 
If you are not, then you're not fit to lead. How in the world are you supposed to lead people if you could care less about them? For some of you, you want to know why you're having trouble in marriage? That's why. How do you love your partner as Christ loved the church? You put them before yourself. You having trouble with your kids? Love them more than you love yourself. You having trouble at work? It's so simple. Put forth the effort for those in your office where you do right by them before you do right by yourself every stinking time. There are going to be times you got to do for you. But if it's always you first, nobody wants you to work on their team. It's all about you climbing the ladder. It's all about you getting more money, getting a better spot, getting a bigger house, proving to your parents that you were valuable. I mean, I'm telling you, it's a great story for you. It stinks to work with you when it's always about you. Now look at the last set of verses and we'll close. We saved the biggest wickedness for the end. Now look at 2 Samuel chapter 11 and we're going to read verses 26 and 27. You have to look for this one, but it's really, really rough. This is the pinnacle of David's sin. You ready for this? Verse 26. It says, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. Now stop right there for just a minute. It's pitched here that she didn't hear about this from David. When she hears that her husband is dead, what you see in this part of the passage is a lack of consent in her relationship with David. She is broken for the death of her husband and the way that it's come about. And she mourns for him. But she's pregnant with the king's child. So look at what happens next. This is David's full-grown, fruit-producing pride. It says, After the time of mourning was over... David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now stop there for just a second. What is it exactly that David had done in this last passage? You see, David had covered it up. And not only had he covered it up, but don't miss this. When she becomes pregnant, he lets her mourn. But then David swoops in. Like the benevolent hero, takes the poor widow into his home, raises her child as his own. And the nation goes, oh, David, such a great benevolent leader. Oh, David, what a great and godly king. David, we celebrate you for the way that you have treated Bathsheba when the narrative is actually that David had behaved in deepest wickedness. If you're taking notes, number three. When's a leader unfit? When they allow the lie to become the narrative. When they allow the lie to become the narrative. David lets them praise and celebrate him over something that was deeply wicked. That's a terrible place to be. It's a terrible, wicked, awful place to be. And I want to show you something else. I'd never caught this till my study this time. Look at what it says in 1125. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. And then at verse 27, it says what David had done displeased the Lord. Did you know that word for upset you and displeased the Lord are the exact same word? 
You could read it this way. Don't let this displease you, Joab. I know that you made a bad military decision, but don't let this displease you. And the Lord steps up in the next verses and goes, I'm displeased. Don't let this upset you, Joab. Uh, Lord goes, I'm upset. I'm upset. And my vote's the one that matters. I'm upset by this. The writer here, which most likely is Ezra, he's writing for us very particularly to let us know, David, oh, don't let this upset you. I'm the king. I pardon you, right? Here you go. I'm sorry. I I absolve you of all guilt on this, Joab. And the Lord goes, it's not your job to absolve. I'm the only one who can do that. He comes back and says, I'm deeply displeased. If you're taking notes, one more quote for you. A leader that allows the truth to be wickedly manipulated will quickly find themselves standing in opposition to Almighty God. A leader that allows the truth to be wickedly manipulated will quickly find themselves standing in opposition to Almighty God. Sometimes in the heat of the moment, you know that you're about to take a lump, you know that you're about to have to deal with an issue that you've created, And in marriage, in friendship, in society, you can think to yourself, it would be for me at this point if I just let them believe the lie and then it'll just blow over. But what happens in David's case is they escalate it. They start to celebrate him for the lie. And when that happens, David's job at this point is to stand up and say, that's not the truth. That's not what's happened. But instead, he steers into it. And when he does that, it creates this absolute mess because a moment is coming when the truth is revealed and it's going to be a mess. I got to experience this here. I've got, I had a lot of scary experiences in D.C. Top of the list for me happened, which was years ago, towards the very beginning of our church. We had a guy hooked on drugs and got through a set of circumstances. A cop had come up behind him and he was either going to jail or he was going to the hospital. And it was going to be the police officer's call at that point. And as they're trying to make the decision, hi, the guy says, but I'm a veteran. And he wasn't. And so all of a sudden, they decided... Police officer, in a moment of benevolence, said, I'll take you to VA hospital myself. I'm a veteran also. Drove him to VA hospital. And they found out pretty quick he wasn't a veteran. And can I just tell you, stolen valor? I thought they were going to kill him. It was a hospital, and I thought they were going to kill him. It was so bad, his family reached out and said, can you pick him up from the hospital? And I was like, seminary never taught me about this. All right? <laughs> I will go stand with you on your worst day. And this is a good picture of why. This is a good picture for you of how. He deserved for someone to be with him on behalf of Almighty God that day. But I'm telling you, I thought they were going to, we were walking through the hall and I thought people were going to punch him. I thought nurses were going to punch him on the way out. He learned very quickly. It may have gotten him out of trouble in that moment. But he paid the price for years afterwards for those words that came out of his mouth. When we lie and it becomes the narrative, if they begin to celebrate you for the narrative, you need to know they will viciously hate you if you don't correct them. They got to know quickly or they will viciously hate you, especially in marriage. You got to know. 
If you messed up, confess up. You can't move forward until the truth comes out. And here's the deal. I wish I could give you the formula for that right here, right now, that fits every occasion. You got to pray it through, kid. You got to pray it through, and the Lord will show you what to do. But you got to pray it through. And once the truth comes out, healing can begin. David's going to be a great picture of that next week. It happens with Pilate. When you look, you don't have to flip there, but in John chapter 18, there's a point where Jesus is with Pilate, and Pilate knows he's an innocent man. I don't need to crucify him. I don't need to kill him. And finally, he looks at Jesus and says, so are you a king? And he goes, that's what you say. My kingdom's not of this world. And Pilate goes, ha ha, you are a king. You are a king. And Jesus says to him, if you stand with me, you stand on the side of the truth. Your wife had this nightmare. You know that I'm innocent. You know that this is wrong. And I'm telling you, Pilate looks and he says the famous line in John 18, what is truth, said Pilate to Jesus. I write the narrative. Jesus, I'm the one who's in control. This is just my little stop before I become a senator in Rome one day, dude. I just got to make sure that I navigate this with intelligence. So you know what? I've got a scheme. I've got a plan. You're wanting to kill yourself. You can't do it. I'm going to make sure that we set you free. And he walks out in front of the crowd and he goes, listen, benevolent pilot here. Here's the deal. I've got two criminals. It says once a year around Passover, I can offer you this. I can release one of these criminals to you. Do you want Barabbas, this murderer, this rabble rouser, or little old Jesus claims to be the king of the Jews? Little bit twisted in his head. Which one do you want? And the crowd goes, give us Barabbas. We're not foolish. Give us Barabbas. We want the murderer. Put him to death. Now, just for the record, it doesn't say this in Scripture. But I've wondered if Jesus had a smirk on his face as that was unfolding. He knows he's going to be crucified. It's the will of Almighty God and the entire purpose of the mission to earth. You got to wonder if Jesus had a smirk on his face and was like, told you. I told you, you have no power in your hands that was not given from above, that was not given from Almighty God. This is not about you. Pilate can't control the narrative, and at the end, he ends up killing an innocent man. You know, Pilate, his legacy is not just in Scripture. His legacy is in literature. The true story of Pilate, Shakespeare based Lady Macbeth off of his story. Pilate went insane After condemning Jesus to die, he washed his hands, washed his hands of the situation. It was the custom of the leader in Rome. He washed his hands, but he could never get the blood of Jesus off of his hands. He ends up going insane. Lady Macbeth is based off of his true life experience. He goes insane. He never got to be that senator in Rome. He never got to move up the chain. That moment, that moment he was a poor leader. Now listen to me. It begs the final question. Have you correctly handled the truth? Have you correctly handled the truth? If not, pray about how you can bring it to light. It doesn't mean that every little gory detail needs to be shared. But it's time that you halt the celebration of the wickedness. When we do that, it just makes them hate us more. Y'all ready for the good news? David was in full-blown wickedness and evil by the end of 2 Samuel 11. Our God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Amen? 
what David makes is a big mess, God then forms him into the man after his own heart and the passages to follow. But you've got to climb through the mess before you understand the value of grace and mercy. We're going to walk through that next week. But for now, for some of you, today's a day of confession. Is there something you need to confess before Almighty God can lead properly in your family, in your business, and in your community? Let's bow our heads for prayer.